0: This week on C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast, Forbes magazine's Chloe Sorvino discusses her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. She reports on the future of the U.S. meat industry, and she's also interviewed by former George W. Bush Administration Agriculture Secretary Anne Veneman. Afterwards is a weekly, hour-long discussion with current nonfiction authors. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It is such a pleasure to be here today with you, Chloe. Um, I read your book. It is most interesting and informative. But I thought we might start today with, um, you know, just why don't you tell us why you decided to write this particular book?
0: The big question, yeah. So I've been at Forbes for nine years now. I head up our food and agriculture coverage, and I started out way back when on the billionaire's beat, getting to know a lot of the billionaires, particularly in the meatpacking industry that control the vast majority of what we eat today, what what meat is consumed in America. And so, you know, when the pandemic hit, I was very deep in reporting on everything that was going on and the financial implications, the health implications, the humanity implications and started realizing that I was probably one of the only people, if not the only person, that a lot of these billionaires were talking to. And I was hearing crazy things, you know, one quote that's in the book that I'll never forget was, you know, a a meat billionaire saying, if it's raining gold, we're walking around with buckets. And there is this attitude towards profiteering that I was blown away by. And then at the same time, I was also doing so much reporting on climate change and, you know, the next pandemic and how it could be on, you know, a factory farm already. And there was just a lot of threats. And then just, you know, it's kind of complete dichotomy of what was happening on the industry, financial, you know, business side of things. And I thought, you know, I might be one of the only people who could really put these two worlds together. And I just really wanted to do it because climate change is getting worse. We have so little time to redo and completely overhaul the meat industry and change production to a place where we could have healthy, sustainable, localized communities you know, around these systems of production. And the climate clock is really ticking. We have to figure this out now. It's not years off in the future. We can't test pilot our way into the future. It's, you know, the next few years, there has to be significant, meaningful change. There's already irreversible damage done. And so, you know, I just really was driven by this need to get this story out and share that this, you know, massive overall has to happen Immediately, and it has to come from all levels of the supply chain from workers to consumers to retailers, distributors, farmers, everyone in between, everyone who touches that piece of meat. Because right now, we're cratering towards this incredibly food insecure future.
1: Well, that's a fairly grim um, assessment of where we're going, but it's a call to action as well. And so Let's go back and and address for a minute the fact that um, the pandemic. I remember during the pandemic reading all of these stories about how, you know, workers were getting sick. They didn't have enough protect or, uh, personal protective material or equipment to really um, be safe in the in the in the uh, in the workplace. But it was considered an essential workplace. So. I I just thought it was it was a very scary time for those working there, but also the consumer was worried about having enough um, protein to eat in their diets as they were cooking at home. So talk a little bit about, you know, some of the specifics of what was going on in the in the industry during the time of the pandemic. I remember reading, by the way, of Um, You know, hogs that couldn't get to market and had to be euthanized, and a lot of, you know, disruptions to this supply chain.
0: Absolutely. It is a catalyzing moment. That's why my book starts off with talking about the pandemic because, you know, it's just one crisis, one devastating, heartbreaking crisis that seriously impacted the meat industry, but there are a lot more crises to come. And so I think just picking apart what really happened and how. You know, there was a concerted effort from the industry to keep their plants open to the detriment of their workers. I think that's really what needs to be taken away from this situation. Aside from the fact that, you know, at the same time, these, you know, many times all these billionaires and companies, like take John Tyson, for example, the chairman of Tyson Foods. They, you know, took out this big front page, you know, big full page ad in the New York Times, decrying crying that the food supply chain was breaking. But really, you know, exports were going out the door more than ever before. And at the same time, you know, there were, uh, you know, Tyson executives and lobbyists and lawyers who were working hand in hand with the government to try to keep policies open. And, you know, there's been some, some wild coverage of Reports in, in Congress and in audits and, and and the kind of email back and forth of how that all really went down, which was extremely startling to see. You also had you know white collar managers at Tyson creating a horrifying betting pool over how many workers could die. I mean, so you have all these you know really startling aspects here to consider. When at the same time meat consumption was continuing, they are continuing to put out meat. Their demand was was soaring like never before, and a lot of customers were freaking out that they couldn't get meat in their grocery stores. But still, again, the workers were obscured. And also, to your point about the waste, the waste was obscured. I mean, this super consolidated and centralized supply chain, you know, it it really created a perfect storm where it was so easy to take out a huge chunk of you know, of production, and and almost one fell asleep with one plant closure, essentially. And that's an insane amount of waste when you think about how many, you know, the thousands and thousands of pigs, you know, and different animals of livestock that weren't able to get to the slaughterhouse. There were some, you know, there were insane amounts of hogs, hundreds of thousands at one point, estimates were even into the millions. That... Hogs that had to be euthanized mostly on their own farms. Um, Other animals that had to be euthanized because they couldn't get space in the slaughterhouses. And you think about that. It's so much more than even just that really horrific loss of life. It was all the industrialized corn and soybean that was wasted, too. You know, the millions and millions of tons of these, you know, highly, you know, chemically produced crops that you know, have been harming environment and then were fed to these animals that then ended up not even being consumed at all and, and oftentimes, you know, rotting in, in waste dumps. And so it's just a horrifying amount of of waste in a, in a system where obviously there was also hunger skyrocketing, you know, food bank lines going down, you know, miles and miles of cars and a lot of people really hurting, especially, you know, starting out the minute it's continuing today from just the massive food price inflation that's arisen from a lot of these backups and supply chain issues and disruptions that continue to happen as an after effect from this pandemic. And again, I think it's important because this is just one crisis. The next pandemic could already be on the next factory farm or you know, it could be around the corner and climate change has already shown us how many, how easily it is to take out certain infrastructure.
1: Yeah, it's it really is quite shocking what happened during the pandemic, although I have to say it was about, you know, a month to six weeks that we really read the stories about all of this going on. I, I had never heard the story, though, that you had in the book that you've just referenced about betting pools among some of the managers. I I found that just, I mean, very disheartening. And really an indication of whether or not management was taking this pandemic seriously and especially as it pertained to their workers. Um, And, you know, of course, not to mention the impact on the the farmers and the waste that was going on, as you mentioned, that was it was just really a difficult time. One of the little stories you had in relation to this was you had a phone call with Temple Grandin and you might tell folks who she is. I had the opportunity to meet her at one time, a very impressive woman who really knows the livestock industry well. Can you just recount that little uh, uh, discussion you had with her about what was going on during the pandemic?
0: Yeah, so Temple is an icon, a true legend. Uh, Her biopic has Claire Danes playing her. Uh, She's an autism advocate and a food systems advocate. She's you know, been a part of the meat industry since the 1970s when she was, you know, kind of upgrading and creating better cattle handling systems. And, you know, I I profile one of the producers that she was one of the first ones she worked with in the book, uh, billionaire Henry Davis of greater Omaha, who we can maybe talk about later. But, you know, she also was, you know, upgrading these systems for McDonald's, Tyson, pretty much everyone in the industry. And, You know, through my work at Forbes, I had the pleasure and honor of working with her on some of her, you know, thoughts as she was trying to figure out what she wanted to write about as this pandemic was hitting. She was a contributor for Forbes.com. And, you know, often I would just get these amazing calls from her. She'd call me up randomly and and, and talk about what she's feeling and what she's thinking about and how this could be turned into something to to share, uh, you know, a very strong perspective on how the industry can be reformed or change or really just how her her story can shed light on on what's on the crisis that's currently happening. And so, you know, I talk about one of the instances when she called me, but she, you know, know, would call me all the time and it would be great every single time. And so she told me this story that really stuck with me and was a crystallizing moment for me as well through my reporting. And essentially she talked about how a few years before the pandemic you know she was trying to get back um, to her home in Colorado kind of close to some of the ranch lands in Colorado and this big storm had completely hit and she couldn't get home she couldn't go on the highway where she needed to go she couldn't get through the back roads pretty much everywhere she was getting to it was flooded the streets were flooded she, there was they were impassable and so she actually got to JBS's you know one of the big feedlots out by Greeley in Colorado and it was a big moment for her because she said she saw the water lapping at the gates of this feedlot. And that's the moment she realized that big is not bad, but it is really fragile. And these centralized systems that have been erected pretty much through her career and the timeline that she's been in the meat industry have made it, you know, completely vulnerable. Well,
1: you know, that, that reminds me um... That story, in terms of how big fragile, how big is fragile? You you had a sentence in the in the book that said, "The meat industry is one of the strongest concentrations of power in the nation." Um, talk a little bit about that, and you know, and and the fact that you you really discussed how much of the meat industry now is foreign owned. You talked about corruption in in the meat industry. Um, I mean that was a big part i think of your first chapter of your book so talk a little bit about the the this concentration of power
0: yeah so that's really where i kind of started off on this journey of reporting myself because you know i was on the billionaires beat doing valuations for the networks you see on the signature lists and realizing that there was just such a consolidation of wealth in the meat industry and that it was really you know almost entirely controlled by, you know, a handful of a few individuals who had amassed major wealth via inheriting, but also some via entrepreneurial, you know, pursuits and mergers, acquisitions and consolidation themselves. And so, you know, these industries have been consolidated for quite some time, but there continues to be Acquisitions are considered continues to be drivers of more consolidation, which is what I really wanted to make sure people understood. Uh, So, you know, just to take a step back, you know, the beef industry, 80 percent consolidated. Some estimates even have 85 percent pork, 70 percent. And when my book went to press, chicken was at 50 percent. And now it's even higher at 60 percent because one of the potential mergers Uh, was officially put through after some antitrust scrutiny. And so, you know, this is extremely centralized. You know, the kind of typical antitrust rules are that, you know, 20, 25%, that's already extremely, considerably consolidated industry. And so, this has a lot of ramifications on both sides of supply chain from the producers and what they're getting paid and how much of the dollar that eventually spent on that meat that they're able to retain. But then also it, it impacts you know, the, the power that meat packers are able to go up against with retailers and as they're trying to sell meat and kind of maintain as much profit as possible. But really this consolidation has overall you know, helped big meat packers get even bigger. It's pushed out a lot of the smaller competitors, a lot of them went bankrupt through the past, you know, several decades. And a lot of that is because these bigger meat packers and, you know, working through only a few, you know, fewer plants but bigger plants, they were able to, you know, eke out and withstand some of the hardships like drought. And market price commodity fluctuations and other you know aspects of the business that just the smaller players couldn't compete with, and so what we have now are these in several regions extremely uncompetitive markets, and a lot of power that meatpackers are actually able to control based on you know what they're paying their producers and you know how, what they're buying how much they're buying where they're buying it all of these different things that you know have helped them maintain an extraordinary amount of profits in the past few years. It's really been growing.
1: And and you talked a lot about um, in the process of them growing, there have been um, investments in the meat industry by foreigners, basically. Um, The Brazilians have invested uh, significantly in the beef industry and others as well. The Chinese have invested in the pork industry. So talk a little bit about, you know, what the meat industry looks like in terms of foreign ownership.
0: Yeah, you really have an emerging, you know, power struggle here. And I think there are many folks who see this as a grave national security risk, especially when you think about climate change and pressures that are to come as more crises hit. You know, the pork industry is 45 percent controlled by foreign owners. Two of the top four are foreign. Uh, JBS is a Brazilian meat packer, which the book goes into a, the kind of wild story of how JBS took over the American meat industry just in the past decade through, you know, this bribery scheme that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in Brazil. But, you know, there's also Smithfield, which WH Group in China purchased and you know so that's that's a that's a big one another one of the big ones is that actually more than 50% of the chicken industry's genetics come from one german company and that was another shocking revelation for me um and you know there's a lot of bills and different advocates in the US that have been hoping for less foreign ownership of farmland for example but i think no one's really talking about the actual Assets, the actual infrastructure, and the contracts and the sales teams too—that you know a lot of the foreign billionaires are acquiring and are increasingly looking towards too in the U.S. You also see this, especially with Smithfield, for example. We can go back to what happened in 2020. You know, Smithfield was one of the biggest companies, uh, biggest meat packers that kept was very you know staunchly keeping their plants open. Uh, there was a, a big Jane Doe lawsuit that eventually was dismissed, but it tried to halt production at at one of their biggest plants, which controls 5% of the overall pork market. And, you know, the worker there was really concerned that Smithfield wasn't going to take the health concerns of its workers seriously. And they fought very hard and eventually, you know, were able to keep that plant open and keep it having exports soaring across the world, but particularly back to China, where they've been seeing increasingly increasing demand for meat and particularly Americanized style pork. And, you know, that's important for several reasons, but particularly take a step back and talk about climate change again. You know, meat consumption must decrease overall. But right now, you you know, UN projections, all the big projections have demand growing a lot. There are several different cases out there, but China is one of the biggest places, and and, and kind of global export, you know, some of the more emerging markets are some of the biggest places for meat consumption to be, you know, expected to increase. And so I think you get into this, like, fundamental question of climate change and how really, you know, foreign ownership or competing interests may one day, you know, be at odds with what needs to happen on a localized sustainability level.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's really quite in, incredible um, how there has been you know so much global integration of this industry, uh, particularly around the protein production. Um, but you just kind of teased us with your with your uh, statement about JBS in Brazil and some of the things that happened there, including I know you had a a story about how there were payments to three different presidents of Brazil. And I think you know people ended up in prison for a while. And so talk a little bit about the JBS story and the, sort of the impact of corruption on the industry.
0: Yeah, this is probably one of the most wild stories in the book and truly took me months of sifting through thousands of pages of lawsuits, legal documents, testimony from these billionaires when before they were in jail, reading their, you know, agreements when they were going to jail, the entire thing. I mean, it was a true saga that to your point, yeah, hit three Brazilian presidents including one actually that was just Re-elected, Lula was just 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 beat by a hair in this wild election that just happened a few weeks ago, and so now he's about to be back in power. And so I think this continues to show how important what the Batistas have done is, and how there continues to be implications. And so I'll take a step back because essentially, these so JBS is the world's largest meat packer today. It started out as a very small family-owned company in Brazil that worked its way as Brazil became a bigger economic co- country, and they, you know they became pretty sizable, and the third generation came in to near twin brothers, Joe and Wesley Batista. And they had these global ambitions like no one really had ever seen before. And they are the driving factors of of how JBS took over the American meat industry and became a huge driving force of consolidation to this day. And so Joe Wesley and Wesley took over and they tried to acquire companies, especially companies outside of Brazil and companies in the U.S. But... They needed money and they needed backers. And so Joesley eventually kind of got on this kickback scheme to have access to one of the finance ministers that was offering low-cost loans. And that started for them around 2004. So it was very early on. Eventually, that relationship of bribes and other bribery relationships that just kind of, you know, paying off fixers here and there to have access to a loan officer or even maybe, you know, eventual President Temer. That all, it all started and then it got very serious because the deals ended up getting way bigger. The billionaire Batista brothers became billionaires through some of these major deals in the U.S. that they ended up acquiring. There were several kind of key deals. In the U.S. that some of these you know, illicitly gotten or ill-gotten funds were you know, used to acquire these companies. Swift, the iconic beef packer Swift, was the first and the biggest. There were investigations afterward that said $362 million of, kind of ill-gotten gains were, were used to make that acquisition. That was the first one they made in the U.S. And then it got more and more and so for every one of these deals they were giving a kickback back to the finance minister who eventually the Batista brothers realized you know he had actually been running this scheme not just for himself but for the workers party of brazil which you know was at that point you know lula had been president for well, very, very beloved president, and then his hand picked successor Dilma was getting into power. And so you have these crazy stories I uncovered of Joe Wesley Batista doing these bribes and making these US acquisitions happening, and at the same time, you know, giving major kickbacks. You know, if there was another acquisition, Pilgrim's Pride in the US, one of the big chicken processors that they, the JBS still is a majority owner of today that was another one of these deals. And the kickback for that deal, which was $800 million overall, the kickback was $55 million that went into a U.S. bank account. And so there's a lot of these deals and bribes that were even happening on U.S. soil. There was a $1.5 million apartment in the U.S. that was used for another one of these bribes. And eventually it kind of ties back into Brazilian politics because they thought this was just, you know, one-off kickbacks, bribes for this person who was amassing wealth. But actually, in reality, there was this political motivation. And so around 2014, the all these kickback funds that Josley had been, you know, holding for this minister, the minister said, we have to put this to use now. And so Josley started doing these <laughs> thousands, you know, uh, lots and lots of different political donations via you know, hidden via different things like cattle invoices or even, like, the transfer of one of his helicopters. And it was all at the direction of this minister who was telling him to be supporting certain people or giving payments, bribes to other politicians so that they would support, you know, this party. And Joe Isley himself hand-delivered cash three, three different times, and there was the three different Brazilian presidents, Lula, in which, you know, that was back in 2014, when... Joe Leslie, you know, through his testimony, had claimed that he said at that point, there's almost no more money left. I've been giving so much money to me, the most donations ever. You know, here's your cash, but I, we really need to like stop this is what he was essentially saying. And Lula, according to Joe Asley's testimony, just gave him a blank stare back, said nothing, didn't care. And I think that was notable. Um, and then there are several other experiences. Dresley uh, then had to meet Dilma, who was then president, just running a runoff in this airport hangar to pay off a bribe for her that she was kind of coercing him to do for another you know, governor that, <laughs> that she had needed apparently to pay off and so Dresley then found himself getting a 3% interest in the concession stand of one of the stadiums where the World Cup was held. And then eventually also, There were bribes given to uh, Dilma's replacement when she was, you know, pushed out. And so Temer had been getting other bribes from the Batistas for years and got several. But then also that was who then Joesley was wearing a wire to interview. And that wire taping eventually was what was leaked and helped protect the Batista brothers as they were kind of negotiating their plea deals with the Brazilian government as whistleblowers. So wow. much more to talk to.
1: <laughs> it sounds like uh, some kind of
0: TV series as opposed to something that really happened. Oh, um, it's it's Billions meets, you know, kind of the crazy, uh, cr- cr- crazy, crazy, crazy stories. Um, crazy.
1: Yeah. Um, you, in
0: addition to the
1: concentration in the meat industry, you really also tie it to the concentration in the grocery industry. In other words, those who are buying the meat to put it onto the grocery shelves. Um, And that they really would prefer to deal with the the, uh, larger producers because they can, you know, then negotiate in bulk for the, you know, for the many stores that many of these companies have. And you specifically mentioned Walmart as the largest meat seller in in the country
0: yeah you know, I think we all grew up playing monopoly, so the concept of monopoly is very clear to a lot of folks, but the concept of monopsony is very much not, and so that's what you're what you're talking about here i have I'm trying to bring monopsony to the modern times i'm trying to try to make it happen um because I think the important thing is that. When there are monopoly issues, you're not going to solve one without the other. You need to solve the limitation of buyers as well as the the limitation from sellers. And, you know, big meat packers say that they're consolidating because they have to deal with someone else on the other end who wants them to be as big as possible because they're even bigger. And I think that's an important driving factor in, you know, the kind of pressure to make Meat as cheap as possible, a lot of meat packers will talk about how you know Walmart has been driving their prices down, and there are so many different things that Walmart or you know a, a big retailer like a Walmart will do to you know, kind of eke out control and kind of take little sense here and there and meat packers have been fighting back essentially with with consolidation. And with getting as big as possible to kind of withstand this. And, you know, Walmart can dictate so much. They have, you know, these meatpackers have very little negotiating power at the end of the day. But Walmart could say, you know what, this isn't good enough for me. And then that whole plant for a meatpacker might end up having to have layoffs even because, you know, they lost their biggest client their biggest customer because Walmart is pretty much the biggest customer for every single Meat Packer, almost all of them.
1: Yeah. So I, I thought it was very interesting to make those links into, you know, how the, how, what's driving the consolidation in the industry. And, and a lot of it is these, these larger buyers.
0: Um, well, to that point think- too, uh, I will say that, you know, there's now a new merger that's up for debate between Kroger and Albertsons. You know the the one and two or the two and three, depends on how you rank them with Walmart. But there's a lot of antitrust scrutiny around it. But you know they're saying themselves that they need to be bigger because of the pressures from Walmart and the pressures from you know having such big suppliers. So I think it it continues to have ramifications for how we eat today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, now, just to pivot away from the concentration of, you know, sort of power in the industry, you had a chapter, which you entitled the human cost of eating meat. And when I first saw that title, I thought, oh, well, that's going to be, you know, talk about the health, the nutrition factor, but it wasn't. That was about um, how you say that the meatpacking Uh, Meatpacking is one of the most dangerous jobs in America. And it's also a place you describe a lot of situations where, you know, harassment and violence often goes um, unaddressed. And you also talk about the salaries are so low in some cases that these, you know, workers are on SNAP or what what we now call SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which used to be called food stamps. So talk about this chapter about the human cost of
0: eating meat. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, I think overall the bottom line is that big meat packers are perpetuating poverty among their workers often, and they're also perpetuating or, you know, letting violence and harassment and sometimes even discrimination go unaddressed in their plants. And there are just so many there are so many different ways that workers are impacted by the kind of negligence of you know how this industry has grown over time and i talk about several different specific lawsuits and different cases of One's a, it's a case of you know harassment and discrimination on religious grounds. Another is a class actions fe- featuring racial discrimination of some hor- with some horrific horrific examples. Um, but there's also manipulation of workers financially, and to your point too about just the actual health risks of working in these plants. I mean, it's no joke. There are I get so many alerts just. You know every other week about different major injuries that are happening in plants that should not be these are caustic environments these are dangerous environments and they're often a lot of times based on these injury reports that I'm seeing you know they're often examples when the plant hasn't had the right maintenance or hasn't been doing enough to protect their workers which is so serious and It's why people were so worried about what was happening in the pandemic, because there's there's this history and there's been this history for so long. Uh, But, you know, there's so many different ways that I uncovered even that workers are being hurt by this system that even really haven't gotten some of the big headlines. And probably the most surprising one to me was just the kind of internal threat from antibiotic resistance that's prevalent in plants. Essentially, workers in these plants are more around superbugs. um, And sometimes those superbugs never leave the plants. But sometimes they spread. And workers are far more likely to contract a superbug. And while sometimes they'll never know it, sometimes what happens is that that superbug lives in their gut and it's only ignited when there's a certain piece of inflammation or a virus or a disease like pneumonia that they get. And so sometimes deaths from a pneumonia or something else can happen super quickly because it's actually being ignited by a superbug. And there's all this new crazy research out there around how these you know, long-term hidden risks to workers exist, particularly from the threat from superbugs and the long-term threat, not just a, a short-term threat. You know, it's really that... It could exist in them and, and, and cause death e- years to decades after they leave a job, even if they worked a job, you know, for like a summer, for example.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I, I think I, w- I was really kind of shocked to read some of your descriptions of, of some of these these issues, not just the short-term, you know, issues, but the, the these longer-term impacts that you talked about, because I had not been previously aware of that. You, you also had an entire chapter on antibiotic resistance and, um, and the fact that the antibiotics that are you know given to livestock often have impacts on human health. And this has been a concern that that people in both the agriculture sort of industry and public health officials have been talking about for some time. so, so talk us a, talk to us a little bit about this whole issue of the antibiotics in the, in the um, meat food chain.
0: Yeah, I think aside from what I just talked about with workers, there's two kind of main levels which are deeply concerning about antibiotic resistance and the continued spread of antibiotic resistance. And just to take a step back, you know, livestock are often given antibiotics to promote growth and for quicker, faster, more efficient growth, which is why there's been a lot of regulations that try to curtail Sales for particularly for growth, although there's been a uh, bad data out there, and what is out there shows that you know a lot of this change has plateaued if not completely almost reversed itself and so that 's a problem because the threat of antibiotic resistance is probably one of the gravest threats to public health we face, especially as the globe gets hotter. It, Climate change makes antibiotic resistance worse because it's more hot, and that increases the spread, essentially. And we're going to—there are a lot of scientists that predict we will hit a point where antibiotics are completely unable to be used. And aside from that, you also have the threat of the next pandemic starting on uh, an industrial, you know, confined livestock operation— just because of the again the way that those operations use and overuse antibiotics and and how it how it's spread within the system and so there's that threat which can't be understated but then there's also the problem I talk about in the book with there's emerging validation problem with what's actually antibiotic free and sold on the market And so, you know, there are a lot of people that are upset about the spread of antibiotic resistance and want to do something about it. One of the clearest ways to do it is to have consumers pushing for less antibiotics used in meat. And, you know, this capitalistic system loves when we we show that with our dollars. And so antibiotic-free meat has been growing over years. But the problem is there is seemingly a supply mismatch with demand and... There's no validation. The USDA essentially will get like an affidavit from a company, not much more that happens from there, no verification, no actual testing. There is, I think, less than 1% of the overall meat is tested, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. And you're now having lawsuits coming out, class actions and different watchdog groups coming out and saying, you know, this meat I bought at Whole Foods that says it's antibiotic free, actually test positive for antibiotics and that just creates a whole host of questions and concerns because there needs to be a validation and there needs to be a way to ensure that these animals aren't actually being treated with antibiotics and obviously when an animal gets sick they need to get antibiotics I'm not saying that there should be no antibiotics used at all but there needs to be a clear way to have this have transparency and accountability, and it's as simple as that.
1: Yeah, I I, I do think this is an issue that that um, many have talked about for some time, and there's been a lot of concern about it. Now, I want to um, now you've talked <laughs> throughout this conversation about the impact on climate change of the livestock industry. Um, And you have a a chapter entitled How Climate Change Will Upend Industrial Meat. And, you know, you also talk about the importance of soil health. And, you know, there is the whole question of how does the food system become more sustainable, and particularly um, the livestock industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, on a fundamental level, meat has to change. There There needs to be less produced overall. Uh, And there also needs to be the systems of production need to completely change. And so, you know, the systems of confinement need to end. I would like to see more meat produced in systems of adaptive multi multi multi-paddock grazing um, where soil health is. A priority where biodiversity is a priority. There are several, you know, companies and different systems I'm talking about in the book that that are making that happen. But, you know, the corn and soy and the feed that goes into these animals alone makes it extremely unsustainable. And it doesn't need to be that way. Meat, livestock, they didn't always need to consume that type of food but also as much as they currently do. That's number 1. Number 2 though, climate change and a warming planet actually makes those crops less nutritious. Let alone it's going to make those crops have far more failures and not meet the production goals that they already have. I mean, this year alone drought and extreme heat has completely killed the soy and corn crop and projections are far off it's it's been a very bad year for many many farmers and that's only going to continue cuz it's only going to be harder to farm and you know on top of that i think about water a lot cows particularly consume a lot of water there's at the same time already access issues with water there's a lot of pollution in so many of the country's waterways the mississippi is receding there's drought on more than half the country and water is going to be is going to continue to be a key resource for livestock. I'm already hearing about ranchers in Arizona and New Mexico selling off their ranches because they don't have water anymore and it's only going to get worse. So, you know, there're just there're so many different aspects of how climate change will attack the resources that big meat has relied on in the past several decades and at the same time there's also been, you know, kind of an eating away at the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act through, in large part, to, you know, industrial meat lobbyists and different interests in that industry. And they've been benefiting from those regulations being eroded over time. But it's now going to kind of completely come back to bite them.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just want to underscore... <laughs> the importance of water. I mean, I I live in California. I was at a meeting with with agriculture producers recently. And this is the central issue that's talked about is the the lack of water, how it's gonna impact the amount of acres that can be for, uh, farmed, um, how it's gonna impact overall the food supply. And so, you know, water's a critical issue that is going to continue to be of importance um, to the society as a whole as, as well as to the agriculture industry and the ability to produce food absolutely so as we talk about um, the environment and the impact of the livestock industry, there are increasingly uh, and we saw a lot of them you know have good sales during the pandemic of alternatives for meat in particularly the, the plant-based alternatives. These companies that are producing them have had, you know, rapid increases in sales. Um, Talk about these alternatives. What are they? Are they better for the planet? Are they better for the human? Are they more nutritious? Um, Talk a little bit about this this whole plant-based alternative market that has been developing over the past several years.
0: Thanks. Yeah. So this is one of those other areas that I thought my reporting and my access to different investors and just all the different balance sheets that I see could really kind of bridge some gaps with different communities talking about different problems, but not really coming to kind of coalesce. And so, you know, I think while there is this frenzy around alternative proteins and plant based foods, particularly in 2020, and they did see you know a fair amount of significant growth taking a step back, the the volume that was actually selling was still less than 1% of the overall meat industry. So it really had never taken a large chunk or a large bite out of the big meat industry, which I think is the most important part of that mission at the end of the day. It doesn't help anyone if consumption is increasing and plant-based foods are increasing alongside meat increasing. It really needs to be a a one-for-one. And you know, unfortunately, we're just not really seeing that yet. Sales have completely stagnated in 2021 and into this year. And this frenzied market that had billions and billions of dollars poured into it from investors, you know, really kind of went bust and is starting to show the limitations of all these, you know, too good to be true marketing stories and climate activists, unfortunately. And so, you know, I wrote a lot about how really may not be even better for the earth on top of all of that, and it's certainly not better for us as humans. They're, at the end of the day, these foods are still highly ultra-processed. There are lots of different ingredients that have been chemically mut- mutated, farmed with some, sometimes even glyphosate or potentially cancerous, allegedly cancerous chemicals, or different herbicides, and that have been used over decades, and supporting you know a system of monoculture where there's biodiversity completely kind of falling by the wayside. And on top of that, like those are the main ingredients, right? The corn, the soy. Then you have a lot of additives, different things to make it taste the way. You want, or they think you want meat to taste. Lots of flavor science, fragrance, cellulose, even added in. You know, t- which is a, you know, a common uh, laxative. And so, there's a lot of things mixed up in this mystery meat, this meatless mystery meat, and it's supporting at the end of the day, the same commodified systems that meat is supporting. It's supporting, you know, the same plants, infrastructure often that meat is supporting. And again, I, I really want to be clear, you know, it's it's it would have a chance of really impacting climate and taking, you know, decarbonizing. If it were to take a significant bite out of meat volume, it would have to be around at least 15%. It's barely there right now. So there's the chance. But... There are just a lot of investors pumping a lot of money into something they saw as a easy hack to a climate change solution that could probably get acquired for a lot of money. And what's now ended up happening is a lot of those investors are writing off their investments, giving up and tossing these ideas aside. And aside from you know, what the actual ideas are about, I think one of the worst parts of writing this book for me was just seeing that time really is running out and we just really don't have the time and energy to waste on false solutions or the wrong ideas or ideas that really investors are just trying to make a quick amount of money off of yeah absolutely i mean
1: uh you do talk about um in addition to you know the the kinds of of alternatives that that you know are made from the corn and soy and and may not really be that healthy for the person eating it, um, that mushrooms may be a better alternative. And then there is the other alternative, which is about to come to market, is actually in the market, I think in Singapore, and that's cell-based or lab-based meat, I think as you called it. Talk about what it is, is it going to work? The technology shows promise, but it will take some time to reach the, the grocery stores.
0: Yeah. So as I said, you know, meat production, meat consumption overall needs to go down. And while I do think there always will be a place for better meat, good meat, more sustainably, nutritiously produced meat to exist, I think by and large, the protein landscape is going to significantly change. And mushrooms are a huge one for me. I was growing mushrooms in my apartment in the pandemic, which was an incredible experience. But there's also a lot of this mycelium tech and startups out there, these kind of like third generation alternative protein startups that are all trying to commercialize the root systems of mushrooms that essentially can be like sliced off and cut into a bacon or a chicken cutlet and actually have a very meaty taste. And so I talk about some of the startups that have been working on this for four decades. I go to one of the founder's homes in upstate New York where he's living off the grid and has all this crazy stuff and allergy pond that's giving him energy. And, um, you know, I think there's still a lot of questions around the energy use behind these plants and any production. And a lot of these, like the mycelium startups, but also the lab-grown startups, which I'll talk about next, they all, you know, kind of rely on the energy grid really becoming electrified. I choose to say if that's actually going to happen, would love it to. But um, until then, there are, you know, kind of, Significant research questions; these aren't, you know, completely uh, carbon negative foods. Um, but mushrooms provide a, a way better outlook, and they're very easy to be using. uses as you know, a, a whole a whole food. They need less processing, which is exciting. Now, then you also have on the other side of things, you have the lab grown meat, cultivated meat. Some folks, especially in the business, are calling it and. Started selling in Singapore. Josh Chestrick behind Eat Just is one of the bigger pioneers here in the U.S. Uma Valetti of Upside Foods is as well. Just opened a big plant in California. And cultivated meat is about to hit our market. Whether folks like it or not, the FDA has been working for a really long time on what these regulations will look like in concert with a lot of these startups and their advisors, and it's about to happen. And I think you're going to hit the culture wars. I think there's some long-term questions around energy and what's really going into these, you know, foods. Fetal bovine serum is still used in some of them, and antibiotics are still used in some of them, which would be spreading and increasing antibiotic resistance threats. Um But overall, I think some of my biggest concerns around, you know, lab-grown meat is the commodification and the kind of hoarding that can be happening among a lot of the billionaire investors who have been putting money behind these startups because, you know, they see it as they're able to invest in the future of the entire protein supply in a lot of ways, and I just... I think it's startling to see and, and potentially think about intellectual property patents and, and this entirely new industry based on science and things that at one point were even open sourced, you know, to see what could happen in terms of, of the power and consolidation of power and 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 how that may end up impacting what we're eating. You know, I think with lab grown meat. It would be super interesting if it was open source and it could be used in a model where there are, you know, local or regional universal, you know, access spots where, you know, people could get it and access it and it wouldn't be this like highly luxurious product. But right now the costs are crazy to produce. They don't seem like they're coming down anytime soon. And if lab grown meat ends up being a product for the bankers and the luxury buyers only, I think that'll be a huge disservice to everyone who is bracing for this climate change future.
1: Yeah. I noticed uh, that you, you talked a fair amount about the fact that, um, you know, some of the, the, richest people in the world are investing in some of these technologies, including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and, and, um, and also that many of these billionaires are buying farmland. Um, and uh, you state in the book that Bill Gates is now the largest farmland owner in the U.S., um, according to some of the studies. So, um, but there's, there's also a part of the book that I thought was very interesting and that you focused about an alternative in in bison. And uh, you were talking about the rise of the bison industry and that it may be not only a healthier alternative, but better for the planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to, to talk about bison just off of that, sales have been increasing a lot. And people, I think who have been thinking about how to find better meat have turned back to bison. I mean, bison were the original, you know, rulers of America in terms of roaming these beautiful Great Plains and having these systems where, you know, indigenous groups were helping them manage and really aerate our soils and create this lasting, long-term, sustainable food system. And what you have, you know, the, the, the... you can't talk about the future of bison in america without talking about its heinous past and you know the u.s government essentially pushed these bison to be hunted down um in 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 a way to aid land theft from native groups and native americans and different indigenous folks who relied on bison for their livelihoods and in their communities and you had this stark, stark situation where there were some, you know, 30 million bison around, you know, in, in the 1800s. And then you, you've got millions, millions slaughtered mercilessly very, very, in, in a matter of years. And by the turn of the century in the 1900s, they were all extinct. And, you know, yeah. there have been a lot of groups that are rematriating bison to their lands, which has been super powerful um, in, a, in a way to kind of, protect and promote their own food sovereignty but there also are some startups that have been working to get this more to the masses which has been extremely exciting because bison are the clearest way for soils to be rehabilitated and for you know their hooves and manure to truly you know regenerate land and add you know, carbon back into, into the land. And while, you know, there's a lot of studies that suggest maybe some of that carbon doesn't stay, there's no question that there are croplands and systems and farms where they absolutely need uh, this type of work and this type of grazing to reignite the soils. So that's yeah. exciting for me to see. But, you know, it, it's a small piece of what's become a pretty disastrous picture because farmland in America has been Completely, you know, corporatized as well. And Bill Gates is the largest farmland owner. And the only real way to change who's farming in America is by changing who owns the land. And you know, there's there's some you know there, there there's the new farm bill that's there. Folks are asking for money to be put, small amounts of money to be put towards. Um, redistributing the the land. But right now, almost all of it is being rented out by large corporations that have no incentive to make better, more sustainable practices happen as land stewards. And you also have prices increasing to some of their highest levels in a really long time, up 40% just this year. And with interest rates and inflation, you know, this is becoming a potentially – scary picture for some of these farmers.
1: Well, I think, um, we are out of time. I, you have given us a great description, um, of this book. There's so much more. I would encourage everyone who has an interest in this area to read the book. It's full of interesting, uh, observations, facts, and, um, I wish you luck as it goes to the market. And, um, I hope we have a chance to talk again soon
0: thank, thank you so, you so much. much thank you so much i so appreciate it thanks for listening to this week's afterwards podcast if you enjoyed this podcast listen to c-span's podcast about books learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors in each episode we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country you'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts